Amen. Thank you, Cindy. I invite you to open your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 13. Russell and Christy, thank you as well. They're going to come back in a little bit and close our service out with a chorus. But thank you for being here this morning. Hebrews chapter 13. I realize that some of you have just taken your children for their first day of school in the last few days or maybe the last few weeks. There's actually some churches or some groups that have been on campus. They don't start until next week. But uh, the term final wisdom just occurred to me today. There's times as parents that we give our children final wisdom when they're getting out of the car for their first day of school. You say things like, do you have everything? Do you have your book bag? You got them clean underwear? You know, we, we say things like that. Or if they're going on a trip, did you pack everything? Or you, maybe you packed it for them. Do you have some money? Do you know our phone number? <laughs> My family, we haven't had those days uh, recently, but we've sent our children off to college. And when you load them up in the car and head them off, you, you are given just some final, you know, don't text and drive. If you need to, pull over. You know, you don't know if they listen to any of that stuff, but just, just as a parent, you're obligated to kind of say some of those final words of wisdom. So when you hear the word wisdom, what do you think? One definition of wisdom compared with knowledge is this. Knowledge is the accumulation of information. Wisdom is knowing what to do with it. I heard a story about the automaker Henry Ford. When he was gearing up his plant to make automobiles, he asked electrical genius Charlie Steinmetz, to build the generators for his factory. And they worked fine for a few years until one day they just stopped working. And he called in all, the, all of his employees. They worked on them, couldn't get them fixed. And so he called Steinmetz and said, you got to come fix these generators. After a couple of hours, he had them whirring back to life. A few days later, Henry Ford got a bill for $10,000. And, of course, he was a tightwad. And so he called him and he said, well, what's this bill for $10,000? How do you justify $10,000, he said, well, it was $10 for the work I did and to work with my tools. He said it was $9,990 for knowing where to put my tools. <laughs> so wisdom comes in handy uh, at times. And that's what we find here today. If you've been here during the summer, I've preached through the book of Hebrews. And uh, we've learned some things this summer. We've learned this is a book, this is a letter written to someone who dearly loved this group of believers, probably outside of Rome or inside Rome, but around Rome. And they were Jews. Primarily, the, the letter was originally written to two groups of people, some who were Jews who had left Judaism and had jumped full on into Christianity. They've trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior, and they're struggling a little bit. They're struggling with some of the things from their past, but they're also struggling with persecution around them. Second group of people it's written to were Jews who had left Judaism but hadn't yet fully committed their lives to Christ. And so they're really struggling. They're, they're kind of in limbo, and some of them are thinking about maybe we ought to go back to Judaism. But it was also written to a third group of people, and that's us. The reason it's in the Bible is not just as a memorial or a testimony to what happened 2,000 years ago. It was here. God placed it here because you and I can learn from it. And this morning especially, when we contrast the old system with the new system. See, we have a new altar and a new city. Let me read just the first four or five verses of this passage, beginning in chapter 13, verse 10. He says, We have an altar 
from which those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as an offering for sin are burned outside the camp. Therefore, Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people through his own blood, suffered outside the gate. So let us go out to him outside the camp, bearing his reproach. For here we do not have a lasting city, but we are seeking the city which is to come. We have a new altar and a new city. The writer often uses the word we. In fact, sometimes he refers to the people he's writing to as brothers, and sometimes dear brothers. And I think there's a a case in which he's a brother of all of them in the sense that he obviously was a Jew. He had to go outside the camp, and that's an important thing we're going to get to in just a minute. But he also wrote wrote to them as dear brothers because he was also a fellow believer who had come to faith in Jesus Christ, and he recognized the difficulty that some of them were having. And so he says, we have an altar that's not like the old altar. Well, let's What was the old altar? Well, the old altar was established in the Old Testament even back before they got to Jerusalem. They began offering sacrifices. What were the purposes of the sacrifices? Well, they were sacrifices for sin, but they were also sacrifices at time when a newborn child, you would after eight days, would come in and offer a sacrifice of thanks to the Lord. Not all the sacrifices were blood sacrifices. Some of them could have been the fruit of your labors. They could have been a wheat offering or a sacrifice of something you had produced. But on one day of the year, Yom Kippur, it's the Day of Atonement, it was a blood offering. And the high priest had to offer, first of all, a bull for his own sins and the sins of his immediate family. And then he would offer sins on behalf of the people, and they brought those things to the altar. And on most offerings, the high priest could partake afterwards. He could eat of it. But on Yom Kippur, he could not because it was the sin offering. And so it had to be taken. After it was offered on the altar, they had to take it outside the camp and burn it. Nobody ate of it. They burned it. And so when he talks to them about this altar, they understand. You and I are kind of going, we don't kind of of get what he's talking about. But he uses an interesting phrase. He said, those who serve the tabernacle have no right to eat. The tabernacle literally was a tent. When they left Egypt, they spent 40 years in the desert, in the wilderness, on their way to the promised land. Shouldn't have taken 40 years. The reason it took 40 years was their stubbornness and disobedience. But in the wilderness, God, through Moses, established this tent, this tabernacle that had a holy place, and then it had the holy of holies. And it was a precursor to what they would experience in Jerusalem when they finally built the temple. But it's interesting, he says, by the time Jesus comes, It's almost as if these high priests weren't serving God anymore. They were just serving the tent. They were just going through religious motions, many of them. In fact, if you were a priest, you did this every day. If you were just a citizen, you would walk by and see smoke coming up from the tabernacle or in later years the temple and recognize there's sacrifice being taken place over there. Well, we have a new altar. The sacrifice that you and I celebrate is the sacrifice that the perfect, spotless lamb poured out on Calvary. When Jesus Christ died on the cross and said it's finished, one of the things that was finished, the big thing that was finished was the sacrifice had finally been paid. For the Jews, it had to happen every year. In fact, sacrifices were a daily occurrence. But on Yom Kippur, every year, 
a sacrifice was made. But something interesting happened. Something important happened at the cross. When Jesus Christ died on the cross, what happened to the old altar? The thing that separated the people from God, the veil, was torn top to bottom. No man did that. In fact, scholars say you could have hooked four horses to the corners of this woven tapestry and you couldn't have pulled it apart. But God miraculously ripped the veil in two. So we don't serve the tent. We don't serve the old altar anymore. We have a new altar. In fact, I want to encourage you, when you think about the next time that in your church you celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want you to think about the new altar. In fact, he says those things are burned outside the camp. Therefore, also Jesus might sacrifice or might sanctify his people through the blood suffered outside the gate. And that's true. When they crucified Christ, they took him outside the wall of the city, outside the gate, and he was crucified out there. So when this writer says, let us go to him outside the gate, he's speaking to Jews who were part of the camp. And he was saying something very significant to them that you and I may not catch, and that is, you've got to go to Jesus outside the gate, which meant what? It meant you've got to turn your back on the tradition of your forefathers, on what maybe you have placed your full faith and confidence in, because there's a new covenant, and it's good news. Jesus wasn't crucified in the temple like the animals. He went outside the gate. So this writer is saying, we too, we need to go out there. Don't place your faith anymore on what's going to take place on the altar inside the temple. Go outside the camp. But it also speaks to us. I want you to get this. You and I meet Jesus outside the gate because we were never inside the gate. If he had died inside the gate, we're in trouble because we have no right inside the gate. Unless you were born a Jew. If you're like me, a Gentile. If you're like me, somebody that was never part of that faith. I was just lost. I was a Gentile, separated from God totally. I now have the invitation to come to Jesus outside the gate. And here's the good thing. I couldn't go to him. He came out to me. He came out to us. So when the writer says, let's go to Jesus outside the gate, if you're a Jew, it should be good news. Leave the old stuff, come to the new. But folks, if you're a non-Jew, it's even better news. It's great news. Because Jesus went somewhere and came from somewhere we couldn't go and came outside the camp, came outside the gate, and we can go to him there to be sanctified. What does the word sanctified mean? It means to be made holy, to be purified, to be consecrated, to be separated. For a Jew to come to Christ meant they were separating themselves from the old. They didn't have to stop being a Jew. They were now a completed Jew because what did the whole Old Testament point to? The whole system of sacrifice in the Old Testament, it wasn't a bad thing. It was God's idea. But every bit of it pointed to the ultimate sacrifice. It all pointed to Jesus. And so when Jesus died on the cross, he fulfilled all of that Old Testament law. So it wasn't a bad thing. You and I, we're separated from what? For the Jews, they were separated from their past. You know what? You and I get separated from our own self-effort. The thing that will keep some people from coming to Christ is they'll never acknowledge they need a Savior. I've had that conversation with some people. Would you like to pray to receive Christ? No, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty good person. I was counseling with somebody who wanted to get married one time, and I just said, tell me about your relationship with the Lord. Well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. I've just always been a good person. Really? You 
want to face God with that someday when God says, why should I let you into my kingdom? And you say, well, that's pretty good. God doesn't grade on the curve. In fact, some of you may be thinking, I can never be good enough to earn that. You're absolutely right. The reason Jesus Christ died on the cross is because we could not be good enough. So if you're, if you're relying on yourself or you're relying on your good deeds, if you're thinking somehow they've just got to outweigh one another, you will never do enough good to outweigh the fact that you are a sinner separated from God. So the offer is an amazing offer. Come to Jesus outside the gate. You don't have to jump through any religious hoops inside the gate. Come to him just as you are. And not only do we have a new altar, we've got a new city, and I love that. We're not, we don't have a lasting city here. You can build monuments here if you want to, but they will not last. In fact, what does the Bible say is going to happen to everything you and I see on earth? It will one day melt with intense heat. And that's real scary for people, or it should be scary for people who think this is all there is. This isn't all there is. It's a lot better than this. We have a city that is to come. Well, secondly, not only do we have a new altar and a new city, but we can offer a worthy sacrifice. Again, sacrifice is something you and I didn't grow up with. We don't understand that. I don't know what you think about when you hear the word sacrifice. Maybe you would say to somebody, hey, I have sacrifice for you. Well, yes, sacrifice costs something. It's costly. But Jesus, or the writer of Hebrews says in verses 15 through 19, follow along with me. Through him then. So, so he's given him this closing wisdom. And I love what he does. He says, okay, because of that, then here's how you live. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that give thanks to his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices God is pleased. Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. Let them do this with joy and not with grief, for this would be unprofitable for you. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a good conscience, desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. And I urge you in all things to do this so that, you, so that I may be restored to you the sooner. So because of the fact we don't have this old altar, we've got a new altar. We've come to Christ through faith. Well, here's how you live your life. Four quick things. First, he says, offer a praise to God continually. And you do that with your mouth. You do that with the opening in your face called your, your mouth. It's through your lips. And it's not just on Sunday morning when we're singing. It's every time you give testimony of who God is. Every time you tell somebody about Jesus, you're offering this continual testimony. In fact, you're offering up a sacrifice of praise as you give thanks to his name. In fact, I would just, on a practical note, the next time you feel down, the next time you've gotten so focused on yourself that you're depressed, take your eyes off yourself and just start praising Jesus. One of my favorite Old Testament prophets is Jeremiah. He's referred to as the weeping prophet. Why? Because the people around him wanted him to die. We're going to talk about your preachers here in just a minute. But hopefully it's never gotten that bad in your church that you're hoping, God, he's never going to leave, just maybe he'll have a heart attack. But that's kind of the way people thought about Jeremiah. They were praying for him to stumble. How would you like to be that kind of leader? Where everybody's murmuring and grumbling against you and says, I hope he falls in a hole. 
hope the earth opens up and swallows him up. And what does Jeremiah do? Jeremiah goes through some depression. And he finally, at the end of it, in about chapter 20, after he's come about as close as you can to cursing God, he starts praising God. And his whole life turns around, whole attitude turns around. So one of the things we do because of Jesus is we constantly offer this sacrifice of praise. The sacrifice in the Old Testament required the death of something. The sacrifice in the New Testament is because of the death of something. Because Jesus has died and because I am dead in Christ, I don't have to go kill an animal anymore. I don't have to kill myself anymore. I offer a sacrifice that it says God is pleased with. We already know ahead of time this is what pleases God. Offer a sacrifice of praise. Yet do it in singing but also do it in speaking, and a sacrifice of praise. And then obey your leaders. You're thinking, okay, preacher, let us have it. <laughs> Are you going to stand up there and tell us we've got to obey you? Now I'm going to stand over here. <laughs> no, I'm not your leader. I'm talking about the leader at your church. Two words that he uses is obey and submit. And for some of you, if that's already getting under your skin, then you probably need to refer to my first point. Because the life that is constantly offering thanks and praise to God won't struggle willingly honoring their spiritual leaders. The word obey literally means to rely on. The word submit means to surrender or yield to. Now listen, if you've got the kind of preacher that is constantly telling you to submit, that's not the kind of preacher you want to submit to. But if you've got the kind of preacher that is serving God and serving you, then obey them and submit to them. I'm going to give you some practical ways to do that in just a minute. But understand something. The Bible says they keep watch over your souls as someone who will give an account. You recognize that. Anybody that stands in the pulpit and preaches and takes on spiritual leadership, whether the preacher of the church or minister at the church, that has taken on that mantle of spiritual leadership, there's a huge responsibility in that. And one of the ways you can help them do that joyfully is by honoring them. I had a pastor tell me this in a church not too long ago. We, we want a preacher, but really we just need him to preach. We'll take care of everything else if he'll just preach. What are they really saying? We don't want a leader. We just want somebody to do something. We, can, we can't preach on Sunday morning, so we just want some. We want to hire somebody to preach on Sunday morning. We don't want a leader. That's really not the kind of leader God calls to churches. Pray for a godly leader in your church. And let them do it with joy. And I just want to tell you, look at your preacher sometime after, after services. If he's somebody that just seems to be down all the time, it may be because he's down all the time. It may be because the burden has become too much. And he's not ministering from joy. I've been there. Early in my ministry, I was there. We had this dinner at our church. It was actually a Valentine's banquet. Oh, happy day. It should have been nice. It should have been fun. But my wife and I got there. We were late. So I was already a little ticked off about that. Went in and because I was on staff, I had to sit at the head table. So I have to pass everybody saying things to me like, well, did you stop at McDonald's on the way? You know, just some snide remarks because we were late. Then I got there and had to sit by the director of missions who I, I didn't even bother introducing him to my wife. I was just having a pity party. I was I wasn't, I wasn't ministering out of joy. Then our pastor's wife to get, got up to introduce 
the people that were going to provide the ministry for that night, and here's what she said. The, the people that we had originally scheduled have had a conflict, and so they're not going to be here tonight. And I'm thinking, oh, great, I had to be here. Why didn't I come up with an excuse? She said, but we are in for a real treat. Okay, as soon as you hear that, what she's really saying is, at the last minute, we found somebody who on Valentine's wasn't doing something. And so that ought to be a tip-off right now. This is going to be bad. So they introduced these four ladies who came up to sing, and I'd heard them sing before. And I know some of you are going to be offended by this, but they sing Southern gospel. And I like some Southern gospel, but I'm, at times I'm kind of like my daughter. We had a Southern gospel group at our church, and after about the third song, she looked at me and said, Dad, they already sung this one. I said, no, they all sound like that. It's okay. And don't get me, I do like some, I do like some Southern gospel. Okay, I like the Gaithers. Um, <laughs> but what I'm telling you I was experiencing was not right, folks. I'm just being honest with you. And all of a sudden, you know what those ladies started doing? They started singing worship songs. And God got my attention. And here's what, I didn't hear an audible voice, but here's what God spoke to me that night. Where is your joy? I got to the point where every time the phone rang, my heart sunk. Because I thought, somebody else wants something. There are times I'd be on the phone for an hour, away from my family, dealing with a problem. Sometimes in the middle of the night, having to leave the house to go deal with something. And I'd gotten to the point where I wasn't ministering out of joy anymore. It was obligation. I had a pastor friend of mine one time say, the ministry wouldn't be so bad if it wasn't for people. When you get to that point, you've lost your joy. And so God got my attention that night. So the next day I went in and I typed the word joy into my Bible program. And I started clicking through the Bible every time the word joy occurs. And the word joy in the Old Testament was more like a shout of excitement or a battle cry. And after about 150 occurrences, I'd only gotten up to about Psalms or Proverbs. I hadn't even got to halfway through the, through the Bible. And I said, okay, God, I get it. I'm not ministering out of a battle cry of excitement anymore. It had become duty and obligation. Folks, you're not doing anybody a favor if you if have forced your pastor into that kind of life. Let him do it with joy. I wrote down a few practical thoughts because I'm speaking on behalf of ministers. Just four things. There, there could be a list, but I'm just going to share four with you. Number one. Don't distract him right before the service. People don't understand that when I get up to preach, I have been th- I spent all day Saturday really kind of my last-minute preparation. So on Sunday morning, my staff knows, don't even talk to Robert on Sunday morning. I'll end up offending you on Sunday morning. because, And I don't mean to. It's just I'm so focused on what I'm going to preach on. And so don't go up to your pastor and say, Pastor, we got to do something about this parking lot. Or I was preaching. I was, a, I was just a guest preacher to church. Guys, you've got to make an announcement this morning. Just, that's just never good. And don't even do this. I've got to talk to you after the service. Because now what you're doing is, all he's thinking is, oh, my gosh, what's he want to talk about after the service? Let your, let your pastor minister from, from joy. And, and don't thwart what God might do in the service by distracting him right before he gets up to preach. By the way, if there's other staff members at your church, go to one of them. Take care of their family. And, yeah, I think that means financially. 
But also make sure your pastor's got enough time with his family. Number three, don't expect perfection. Allow for mistakes. I've talked to some church search committees that just wanted some advice on what they should look for, and I said, you're looking for Jesus, but you wouldn't hire him because he's single. So be careful if you're expecting your pastor to be perfect. There's only been one perfect. It was Jesus, and you probably wouldn't hire him because he had long hair and he was single. Be careful what you're looking for. Don't compare them to others. Listen, we live in a generation where you can listen to preachers 24-7 if you want to, and some of them are great. Some of them are packaged. Their message has been edited you don't hear the bad stuff. All you hear is the good stuff. And you come to church on Sunday morning thinking, why didn't he preach like Charles Stanley? Why didn't he preach like Billy Graham? Or You fill in the blank. <laughs> and then the last one, I'm done. I'll get off my soapbox. Please do not go up and offer them a CD of a message somebody else preached on the same topic he just preached. Pastor, really enjoyed your sermon, but you ought to listen to this sermon because so-and-so preached this last week, and here it is. Well, I mean, what the way the preacher's going to interpret that is, well, they didn't think much of my message, and they're thinking maybe it'll school me. Hey, if he's already preached the message, he can't go back and unpreach it, all right? Let it go. Obey your leaders, submit to them. Folks, that's not a blanket statement to blindly follow an ungodly pastor. Jim Jones convinced 800 people to drink Kool-Aid. So you've got to have some spiritual discernment here, all right? If y'all don't know who Jim Jones is, that's okay. Guyana, 800 people committed suicide because this guy had so brainwashed them as their leader that they all committed suicide. I'm not talking about that. And maybe it's all solved by the last thing, and that is pray for me. Pray for us. The writer of Hebrews is saying, hey, you want a better pastor? Pray for him. Have you done that? If you want his sermon to be more than just exegesis and rhetoric, pray for him. One of the, one of the, I'm going to mess this quote up, but I read it this year. A lot of times as, as pastors, we pray in our studies, God, help me get this passage. And I read the confession of an older pastor this past summer. He said, God, don't just help me get this passage. Help this passage to get me. Because if all we're doing is preaching black words off a white page, we may know all the nuances of the Greek and the Hebrew, but if the passage hadn't gotten us, we're just sharing information. There's a big difference. Let them do it with joy. I love what John said in 3 John chapter 4, uh, verse 4, the only chapter of 3 John. He said, there's no greater joy for me than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. You want to make your pastor happy? Let him see God at work in your life. And don't do this. I had a friend of mine, his first day at the church, first day, one of the deacons walked up to him and said, Pastor, I was at this church before you got here. I'll be at this church after you leave. Welcome to church. (laughs) And then let me close with the benediction, verses 20 and 21. 
Now the God of peace, who brought up the dead from the dead, the great shepherd of the sheep, through the blood of the eternal covenant, even Jesus our Lord, equip you in every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom, listen to this, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. I'm out of time, but just briefly. Here's what happens through Christ. We're equipped to do the work through Jesus. If anything I've said for you to do today, if you try to do this in your own strength, if this is what you're thinking right now, that don't work. Trying harder doesn't work. What works? Unconditional surrender to our Savior. If Jesus is living this out through you, then you can obey your leaders. You can submit to their authority. You'll pray for them. And you'll continually be offering up a sacrifice of praise if you're doing it through the power of Christ at work through you. If you've just gotten a dose of religion and you're trying to do the 12 steps without the power that God supplies, it is impossible. It's impossible. For some of you, that ought to be just a light bulb moment for you and go, wow, no wonder church for me has become a duty. I'm just trying to do what I know to do. And I'm miserable. i got good news for you if you're there today. Come to Jesus. Quit relying on yourself. You may know the Bible backwards and forwards, but if you're not relying on Jesus, if you're relying on your best effort, you will fail. And you'll hurt doing it. In fact, I love what he says. He will equip you for every good thing to do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. So who is it that's at work within us? It's God. Who knows better how to please God? God. So let him work in you. And then the last word is amen. We say that a lot. Here's what it means. It means, so let it be. Word literally means firm, trustworthy, or surely. But when you hear the word amen, not oh me. When you hear the word amen, so be it. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the truth of your word. God, thank you for the opportunity just to hear the end of a letter from someone who dearly loved the church that he wrote to and was concerned for their welfare. God, would you apply that to our lives? Lord, I recognize I'm speaking to people who won't be at Garden City Chapel next Sunday because we won't have services. And so, God, would you lead them to churches in their own location where they could serve you and where they could support a team of ministers in their church where those ministers would be able to minister from a position of joy. And, God, there's probably somebody here that is a minister that They're here today, but next Sunday they'll be back ministering either as a pastor or a worship leader or a youth pastor or small group leader, Sunday school teacher in whatever capacity. God, would you restore to them the joy of the ministry? Would you fill their sails again with just your wind of the Holy Spirit? Forgive us at times when we try to do it in our own strength and we fail. Thank you that you never called us to do that. 
In fact, you're not only equipping us, you are empowering us through your person to accomplish what it is you want us to do. So thank you. And I pray all of this in Christ's name. Amen. One of the things we do as we close our service is to read the uh, offering that was received today. This is Pat Henry. He was the interim pastor in 2000. That's a joke. But he is our chairman uh, this year of Garden City Chapel. (coughs) Are we still friends? I'm in trouble now. There's a plaque on my wall that Pat gave me. He was the chairman of the board when I came. There's a plaque, and it it says, Robert Shaw, pastor, 2001, and there's a dash. He said, you'll know it's time to leave when there's a date now filled in. (laughs) So I might be in trouble. But today we have received $84,484. To God be the glory. Stand with us as we sing to close. Yeah.